them. Oftentimes, they're in our courthouses, they're in our churches, they're everywhere. Um, and so sometimes we, um, I think we need to come back to and ask, what are the Ten Commandments really calling us to do? And what, what would our life look like if we actually incorporated these Ten Commandments into our lives? And so you won't want to miss that. And um, that's going to take us clear through uh, September, beginning of October. And so we're going to have a good time, and you won't want to miss that. So with that said, will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have the freedom and the ability to be able to open up Scripture. And so now, Lord, I pray that um, we claim your promise that your word would not come back to you empty. And we pray that you would fill us in a way that would um, continually transform us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Once upon a time, a semi-long time ago, there was this magical device that was black that recorded live images. It was the VHS cassette. Most of you, as I look around, know what this is, but some of you have probably never seen one of these before. This is what we used to watch movies on. We would actually have to go to a store, whatever you wanted to, and you would rent one with a membership card that you needed in order to be able to, perhaps on a Saturday night, watch a movie. It's the thing that we recorded family gatherings or special events like graduations or weddings. It was this magical device um, that everybody had in their homes. Specifically for us, we used to like to go to the, um, you know, Blockbuster or wherever was the cheapest place. There was always these independent ones, and, you know, you would rent a movie for a dollar back then, and um, you would have it for a night, and then you would return it. Right back before you could download everything from your computer or watch it on the internet, it was this magical thing, this device that we used to rent. Now, if you ever rented a movie, I know we're Seventh-day, good, good Seventh-day Adventists probably never... None of you ever did that, but let me share you what I have done when I'd rented a movies. When you would go, I feel like I'm a little bit loud. Am I a little bit loud? It's this thing, right? Can I, is there a way for me to shut this off? I'll have Douglas come do it. Um, when you would go and rent a movie, though, on almost every single video cassette, there was a sticker that said this, please be kind and rewind, Right? Some places would even charge up to 50 cents if you didn't rewind it. Now, for, for some of you who have never seen this before, it makes no sense to you, but if you happen to be the one individual, the unlucky individual who went to rent a video and it wasn't rewound, it was the biggest pain in the neck, wasn't it? I hated it. I'd be like, why would anybody not rewind this? Why would they do that? Because once you got home, if it wasn't rewound, you'd have to put it into your VCR and then you would hit rewind, and you couldn't not watch the TV, but you knew you shouldn't watch the TV as it was rewinding because you didn't want to miss anything, or you didn't want to, or you don't, rather, you didn't want to spoil any part of the movie. But once it was rewinding, you couldn't look away. You couldn't, you know, because you had to be there to make sure it was before the preview started, and so you, it ruined it. Evil people that didn't rewind would ruin the movie experience. Later, I would find out that they actually made rewinding contraptions, these little machines. We never had that because my parents, I don't know, they just didn't believe in it. Um, but everybody hated it when somebody didn't rewind their thing. It irked us. 
Because somewhere, somehow, there was this unspoken agreement among people who rented videos that you would rewind it for the next person because it was the right thing to do and it was the kind and polite thing to do. This kind of stuff bothers us because we sense that things need to be better. It bothers us because we don't like the way it happens. It bothers us almost the same way as we get cut off on the freeway by somebody who thinks they're in a NASCAR race. Has that ever happened to you? It cuts you off. My, my favorite, rather, the one I hate the most, is when people are, are trying to get into the freeway and there's that long, slow lane, right, and it's empty. And so what do people do? They go all the way down the slow lane and then right before they have to exit, what do they do? Yeah. I hate it when people do that. It makes me so angry, and it's like you have to let them in if you're that car that they're getting in front of, because guess who's going to be uh, charged with the accident? The person behind. Sure, there's times that you would rather just not let them in and, you know, hit them in the side a little bit, not bad, but it irks us. We hate it because that was, the, that was wrong. It was sinful. It was evil. They need to just follow the rules like all of us who are sitting in this long traffic. We hate things like this because it... It's not the way things are supposed to be. It's like when somebody steals your parking spot at the grocery store or at the mall, and then they pretend like they didn't even see you. Or when you're in line at the grocery store and you're just standing there, somebody tries to just come in and just be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you there. I'm not confrontational, so I just let them go because I'm just like, well, what am I going to do? But we hate it when things like this happen because this isn't the way things are supposed to be. The world and the reality that we long for is one where everything is the way it should be, where everything is as it ought to be. In essence, we're looking for a perfect world, a beautiful world where things are as they should be, a world where everything is perfect all of the time with no exceptions. We could even call this this place, this reality that we long for, heaven. If you've ever said the words, I can't wait for Jesus to come, I can't wait for heaven, usually it's because we're experiencing something that is just so heavy and difficult that we think that the only possible solution to what we're going through is to escape this world and go into the next one that God has promised us. So I want to share with you what we find in the Bible about this other place. In Isaiah 11, it says, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together. And a child shall lead them. Did I already pass that? The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. When we long for a perfect world, some of these images that we've read in Isaiah for years and years kind of come to mind where everything will just be perfect and there will be no violence and there will be no bloodshed. And as it says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the wolf will eat like a cow, grain. We won't be afraid for our lives. What this is called is the peaceable kingdom. We long for a time and a place where peace will 
will reign. As kids, whenever we were in school, and I don't know if this was true for you, but for me, oftentimes when people would ask, if you had one wish, what would it be? And it's, it's probably the same question that uh, Miss America and Miss Universe contestants, right, get, and they, they get asked that, and what do they say? We wish for peace, right? Back, back in the 90s, peace in the Middle East, you know, it was we ask for peace because that's the way the world should be, and if everything is at peace, life is better for everyone. Another passage we look at is in Revelation 21, verse 4 and 5, and it says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. We long for heaven because that is where everything is perfect as it should be. Where there are no tears, no suffering, no disease, no death, no disappointment, no sadness, no medications, no tragedies, no taxes, no anxiety, no depression. Nothing evil will be there, and so we long for that place. But the reality that we come to is that this place is not that place, is it? And for many of us, we want to, at some point in our lives, to get out of this place, to get to that better place, because sometimes life is so difficult and burdensome that we just want relief. But that's not the way God designed everything to work, is it? If every time we wanted to get out of this place and God said, okay, I'll take you out of this place, probably there would be nobody here except for a few people. But God doesn't work that way. God doesn't just evacuate us from this horrible place, but rather God, through Jesus in his prayer, says, I pray not that you take these people out of this earth, but that you protect them from the evil one. We long for that place, however, because we were created to live in a place like that. From the beginning, God created you and I to live in the very best possible place. When, when we think of the Garden of Eden, it, it's, it's the, the perfect paradise in one sense. That's what we were destined for. That's what we were created for. And yet Adam and Eve messed it up for us. But we still long for that. Now, I want to I challenge you to a new way of thinking. We don't long for heaven just because this world is bad, okay? Like because things are difficult here and there's sin and there's death and decay. We long for heaven because at the very beginning, God places a sense of eternity in our hearts. So if you have your Bibles, it's not on the screen, but Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. I'm reading out of the New International Version. Solomon writes that God also set eternity in the heart of man. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has set eternity in our hearts. That's a weird and poetic way of saying that God has instilled in us, innate in every single one of us, that yearning for something that's more. That yearning for something that is better than anything we've ever experienced. Now, God would be a cruel God if the only time we could experience this goodness is at some point in the future. God would be a cruel God if he knew that we couldn't experience this eternal life until after we've lived an entire life on this earth on that day of the resurrection. God would be cruel, unfair, and one that I wouldn't believe in if we could only experience God's goodness in eternity. 
You see, what we find in the Bible and what we find in the life and in the teachings of Jesus is that this heavenly experience isn't just experienced in the future, but it's something that begins today, something that begins now. And I want to read to you from a passage in Matthew, the one that we know as the Lord's Prayer, the one that Jesus teaches his disciples and he teaches you and I how to pray. And in verse 10, Jesus says this, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But have you ever really stopped to think about this? We're busy on this earth trying to get out of here like a rescue mission, like an evacuation to go to heaven, wherever heaven is. And yet what Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and what Jesus continues to teach you and I to pray is that God's kingdom come on earth that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Now, essential to understanding this, this idea of God's kingdom coming, a kingdom is not a kingdom unless it has people in it, correct? There is no such thing as a kingdom with nobody in it. There, it doesn't exist. It's not real. So for God's kingdom to come to this earth, what does it need? People. God's kingdom is populated by people, by you and by me. We are a people of God, and we are learning to live God's kingdom life here. That's why we come to church, to learn and to delve even deeper into the scriptures, to learn and fall more in love with God because there is something that God is still doing in this world as difficult and as hard as it may be, but God is still doing something and God is asking you to be a part of it. And if you don't believe me, believe the words of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where, where Peter writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Read at a different time in history, the Israelites of the, of the Old Testament would have taken this and said, we are God's chosen people. But what we find as a result of Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection on the cross, what we find is that this holy race, this royal priesthood, a holy nation, isn't prescribed to a geographic location or to a people of a specific nationality. But this royal priesthood is for every one of you who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We are now a part of that royal priesthood. You see, a kingdom usually has the people at the top and then all of the serfs and all of the slaves, right? But in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as there's some better people and some not so good people. We're all just a part of it. And what we find in the scriptures is that we, what God, what God calls us, the people who populate the kingdom of God, is that we are a royal priesthood, all of us. You are royalty in the kingdom of God. That may be difficult for you to, for some of you to grasp. For some of you that have said, well, you know, you don't know where I come from, Pastor Dave. You don't know how poor I've been and what I've had to do to earn money. How can I be royalty? That's what we talked about last week. The kingdom of God doesn't function by any of the ways our current governments function. 
The kingdom of God isn't something that is modeled after anything in this world. The kingdom of God isn't modeled of, 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 of uh, excuse me. The kingdom of God isn't modeled by any of the social structures that we find around us in this world. The kingdom of God, that the greatest of those in the kingdom of God are the least of those. That the greatest in the kingdom of God are those who serve selflessly and give to others without restraint. You already are royalty. We think about one day when we get to heaven, right? We look at these images of having a white robe and a crown, right? But the truth is you already are royalty. Jesus, when he dies at the cross and he is resurrected, he has already begun the work of transformation in your life. Anyways, he's already made you part of this royal priesthood. God's kingdom then in order for it to flourish in this world, is it needs you and me to be kingdom people. The kingdom of God flourishes in this time and in this place when people like you and I make Jesus Lord of our lives. And, and what that means is that we learn to live by the rules. That's a bad, that's a bad way. That's a, let me, I'm saying it wrong. The kingdom of God is about you and I living after the model of Jesus' life. And what we read this morning in Sabbath school is it was a life of compassion, of grace, of love, of forgiveness. The only time I remember reading in the Bible that Jesus gets mad is that when he comes into the temple and, and people are selling doves and all sorts of animals as sacrifices. The only time we see Jesus getting upset is when people have made a mockery of worship, when people have made a mockery of actually asking for forgiveness. We are God's kingdom people, and God has called you and I to take his, not just his message, but his essence into this world. And we get to the next line that says, your will be done. It's the question we ask is, well, what is God's will? God's will is that we would all come to know and love him. God's will is that every single person from all time to be able to enter into this relationship with God that breeds in us an abundant life, a new kind of life, and leads us into life eternal with God. Now, how many of you know what's going to happen when you get to heaven? Truth. Not just what we say is going to happen, but what do we really know? Do, you, do any of you know where heaven is? up there somewhere, but even beyond that, see, what happens is we spend, we spend all this time in our churches talking about, I can't wait to go to heaven. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I can't. But we don't even know what's going to happen there, but we know what's happening here, and what the book of Revelation teaches us is that wherever heaven is, it will eventually come down and make its place and its home here on this earth. God will dwell among his people, and he will be our tabernacle. God's will is for goodness for all people all of the time. But God is not going to intervene for everyone because then he would be kind of unfair. And so what happens is God has asked you to be his body, his hands and his feet in this world. God is, this is what God is asking you, okay? So if for those of you who have maybe suffered with, man, I don't have a purpose in this life. Uh, man, I, you know, I, I didn't accomplish what I wanted to. I, I still need to go back to school for another degree. I need to get... Um, I don't know, I need to move to another place for things to get better. For those of you who are thinking to yourself, you know, maybe I'm too old, I'm done, I'm retired, I, I have nothing left to give, or 
if you are young and you think like, man, I still have to go through school to be able to do anything in this world, okay, for all of you who are here this morning, your purpose and your call from God is to be His presence in this world. I don't know of any purpose or meaning greater than that. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle because the fact that God has called us to be His presence means that every moment of every day, the question we should probably ask ourselves is, does this glorify God, what I'm about to do, what I'm about to say, or does this not glorify God? The reason that that's so difficult is if we really ask that question, or if we ask after the fact, did this glorify God, the answer most of the time is probably no. Because we're living in this life where we're struggling with what we want, with what we desire, with what we think is best. We struggle because that's our natural inclination. And the truth is that when we're following Christ, when we're following God, we have to go against our natural inclination and do what, what does good for God. So I'll say it this way. Um, I had a therapist once, and I said to him, whatever he was telling me to do, I said, it just doesn't feel natural. And he goes, no, of course not. That's the problem. Because you're allowing yourself to get what you want when what you should be doing is doing what God's will is. Said a little bit different, but I'm, you know, can't give away too much. But that was, I, he told me that, I'm just like, but that makes no sense. This is my life. This is who I am. This, this has been a creation for the last X amount of years. This is, how can I change? And he goes, you, just, you have to. You have to fight your natural inclinations. And I think that's the truth, or that's a truth for us as people of God. We have to fight our natural inclinations to always get what we want, to always do what feels good, and we have to do what gives honor and gives glory to God. Because in one sense, we owe our entire existence to God. We do. The fact that you are alive today is because there was God who deemed you worthy and valuable enough to die for you. It's the, it's the saying that a mother will tell their child, I carried you, what does it say? I gave you life, I can take it away from you, right? The idea is you owe your existence to me, but the truth is we owe our existence to God, and, and, and what's difficult is we sometimes let our own wants and desires overshadow what God wants for us, what God is asking us to do. And yet our entire existence is owed to him. And so here's the third part of that. It says, on earth as it is in heaven. So if heaven is the perfect place where everything is as it should be, Jesus is praying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we've already discovered that God needs you to be his presence, his body, his hands and feet in this world. So who is it up to for God's will to be done on this earth? Who? You, you and me. God's kingdom flourishes in this world, in our families, with our friendships, in our churches, when we choose to be God's kingdom people, when we choose to be God's body in this earth. What that changes is that it changes our entire perspective on everything that goes on in our lives. That's the hope. Imagine what it would be like if in every interaction you've had, you have, if the other person was asking, like, 
is what I'm about to say to him or her, will that glorify God? If you asked yourself before you had every interaction, let's say you get upset at your husband because why? You know, wives never do anything wrong. But when wives, if you were upset at your husband for doing something, and you're just, you know, I don't know, going to just yell at him for doing something, what if you asked, would this glorify God if I said it this way? Hey, I'm not saying I do it all the time. I usually do it after the fact. Dang it, I should have changed. <laughs> you know, next time. But what if, wouldn't the world be a different place if everybody asked themselves that? It would change the world. It's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What we find in that one passage, it says, all things whatsoever you would have other people do to you, do to them. This is the law and the prophets. The golden rule isn't just for Christianity. It's in many of the other sacred texts of all of the other world religions. Now, we can disagree with all the other world religions, okay? We can disagree. We can say that they're wrong. We can say that we don't agree with them, that you need Jesus. We can make all of those arguments. But the interesting thing is, what we find in our Christian scriptures is that if you truly have understood and have a relationship with Jesus, the natural outflow of that relationship is what? To love and serve others. That's it. Okay, Jesus says, hey, on the day of judgment, you guys are all going to be telling me I've done all these wonderful things. And Jesus says, like, I never knew you. But the people who just are like, whoa, judgment day is here. Jesus says, you've done all these wonderful things. And they said, no, we didn't. And Jesus says, yeah, you did. And you did it for the least of them. That's love. The one defining characteristic of whether you truly believe and have a relationship with Jesus is love. The interesting thing about that is that it shows up in all of the other world religions. So either they copied from us, or God has a part in everything in this world. And Jesus says, abide in me, and I will abide in you. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. The only way to be God's presence in this world is if you are abiding in Christ. The only way is if you are spending intentional time with Christ. I'm not legalistic on anything. I think God's grace surpasses us surpasses all understanding, and God will save all of those of us who believe in Jesus. I believe in that. But the one thing that I will say is if you're not spending intentional time with Christ, it's going to be really hard to be his presence in this world because the only way you can represent Jesus is if you know him. Let me give you one final example just to kind of, to, to kind of make it a real-day thing. Um, one of the things, that, and, and, and the way we become more in the image of Christ is spending time with him it's like any relationship that you have. One of the things that I've seen in myself, unfortunately, and, and just in people around, is when you're younger you, um, and you like a girl and she likes cranberry juice. I don't know. That's just the first thing that came to my mind. Um, you ever notice you begin to like cranberry juice too? You guys, you guys all know what I'm saying, right? You begin to adopt the things of that other person because you like them so much. For me, there's things that I've adopted from my wife that I won't share because she may get mad at me later. But she has, well, I'll just share. She has this laugh that she does when something is really funny. 
And when she first started doing it, I was like, And what I find myself doing is because she's so passionate about certain things that are funny, like in some ways, and I don't think she knows this because she's not around when I laugh like that, I have that same laugh. (laughs) Because I get what she, you know what I'm saying? And it's the same thing. And, And I would never have had that laugh had it not been for me being married to her. It's very distinct. But the truth is that my life has changed and I'm changing some of the things that I like and I didn't like before because of this relationship. And it's the same thing with your relationship with God. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more time, whether it's through Bible reading, whether it's through hymns, whether it's through praise songs, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through conversations, whether it's through church, through certain, whatever it is, the more you, you intentionally spend time with Christ, the more you will become like him. There's no other way. There's there's nothing magical. There's nothing superstitious. That's just the way it is because as human beings, we learn to imitate the people that we love. And so this morning, I just want to challenge you. And I want to leave you with this last Bible verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. It says, Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo, listen to this, okay? Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering and persevere in prayer. We long for heaven because it's the place where everything is as it should be. And yet what God is calling each one of us to do is to bring heaven to earth, to act heavenly in a very hellish place to act heavenly to everyone we encounter because the kingdom of God will not power its way through military force, but the kingdom of God will flourish from those who love and serve one another. Amen.